Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 42nd Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. the 60s baby 1969 the end of a rough decade one of the wildest beginning to end journeys of decades we've had in american history i think it's a, it was a real whiplash of a 10 years yep okay so with that being said it's 1969 richard nixon mm-hmm. has just just gotten sworn in so yeah so you can, great news you can there. see where we are <laughs> Really good news. I guess we're calling this politics news because it did have some major political consequences. But Chappaquiddick happened this year. Ted Kennedy's crash that resulted in the death of the woman he was driving with and ended any chance he ever had to run for president after that. Shall we move on to some science news? Because that could be cool, fun stuff. We will start with the first communications were sent this year through the ARPANET, which is one of the early iterations of what became the internet. Exciting times. Also this year, the United States landed on the moon. Yes. Huge times. And we declared ourselves from that point the victors of the space race. Mm -hmm. And then the space race was over. Yeah. That had not been claimed prior as the way that the space race would end. Russia beat us nope. on every metric up until that point. But we beat them to the moon. So and now it's over. Winners. Yeah. yeah. Now it's over. So exciting science news, I think. Men on the moon is pretty cool. Men on the moon is really cool. I mean, even though I do think it's really silly that we artificially decided that was the end of the space race. Sure. It is cool as hell. In pop culture news, is this all exclusively great news as well? No, we're going to start sad and move to positive. So this was the year of the Tate murders. The The Manson family killed a very pregnant Sharon Tate and a number of her friends. Horrific. Yeah, that's an oof. But in less horrible news, Woodstock happened this year. There have been like many various Woodstocks, but the one that people think of as being Woodstock, that was this 1969 Woodstock. So huge times in music. Yes. Also this year, Sesame Street debuts. Love it. Shockingly, PBS is also established this year, but after Sesame Street. Sesame Street predates the public broadcasting system in America. Absolutely wild. So that's 1969. What does that mean for the movies? This is an interesting crop of movies. We've got like a foot in the past and a foot in the future, but we'll go Mm -hmm. through what the nominees were and then, you know, get into it. So in alphabetical order, the first nominee this year was Anne of the Thousand Days, a historical drama about King Henry VIII's pursuit of marriage to and murder of Anne Boleyn. It stars Richard Burton and Genevieve Bougeot. It was directed by Charles Jarrett written by Bridget Boulland and John Hale, was nominated for 10 and it won one Best Costume Design. Next, we have Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a historical dramedy about the latter days of a pair of Western outlaws. It stars Paul Newman, Robert Redford, and Catherine Ross. It was directed by George Roy Hill and written by William Goldman. Nominated for seven Academy Awards, it won four, 
Best Story and Screenplay Based on Material Not Previously Published or Produced, Best Cinematography, Best Original Score for Motion Picture, Not a Musical, and Best Song Original for the Picture. Next, we have Hello, Dolly, a musical about a matchmaker in late 19th century New York. It stars Barbara Streisand and Walter Matthau. It was directed by Gene Kelly, written by Ernest Lehman. It's nominated for seven, and it won three. Best Art Direction, Best Score of a Musical Picture, Original or Adaptation, and Best Sound. Next, we have Midnight Cowboy, a drama about two outcasts trying to get by in New York City. It stars Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, directed by John Schlesinger and written by Waldo Salt. It was nominated for seven and it won three. Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay based on material from another medium. And then finally, we have Z, a political thriller closely based on the assassination of a Greek political figure. It stars Jean-Louis Trintignant, Yves Montagne, and Irene Pappas. It was directed by Costa Gavras, written by... Jorge Semprun was nominated for five and it won two best foreign language film and best film editing. So let's talk about the top five highest grossing movies of the year to get a sense of what the public was watching, regardless of the Academy. The top five were Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Love Bug, Midnight Cowboy, Easy Rider, and Hello, Dolly. What a, what a mix of films. What a mix of films, but three of our nominees are in there, and one of them we will actually also be talking about today. I think it's Love Bug? Bug or Easy Rider. I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. But, you know, I feel like they're pretty with the zeitgeist since yeah. several of our, our top five are in the nominees. So did anything particularly notable happen this year in film or Academy Award news or anything like that? So... As you all know, listening, we have selected our years randomly. And what a fascinating year to get after the last year that we did. So the last year we did 1933 was the final year before the Hayes Code became strictly enforced. And now we are at the time when the Hayes Code has been eliminated. So this yeah. is the first year where the Hayes Code is gone. Enforcement had started to flag over the last couple of years, but no more. Nope. No more Hayes Code, so that's absolutely wild that we just happened upon this year, yeah. which which led to some, like, lots of changes, some good, some not so good, like you would like to speak about here. <laughs> yeah, so apparently one of the, I would say, good things about the Hayes Code was it's the mechanism that the American Humane Association used to monitor animal cruelty on film sets. And then when the code ended, I guess no one thought about it and they were not allowed to monitor film sets anymore until the 80s. So yeah. there was unfortunately a sharp increase in animal cruelty in films. So that's pretty bad for this, this stretch of years until they're able to get back onto those film sets. Yes. Because the Hays Code went away, that's not to say that Hollywood just became the Wild West again. The reason it went away is because they instituted a new way to talk about what was going on in these movies. This is the first full year of the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America, rating system, which you will all be familiar with, though this first year was a little bit different than I think people are used to the ratings being. So the first year of ratings, the ratings were G, M, R, and X, which becomes important as we are just about to talk about. Mm -hmm. So the X rating was supposed to be the one for the most adult people. It was persons under 16 will not be admitted. Even if your parents are like, it's cool. No. 
can't have you. And your parents are there like, let them watch it. It's my child. And they're like, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason this becomes important is because of another interesting fact about this year. As we already mentioned, Midnight Cowboy was our winner. And it was X-rated. In fact, it is the only ever X-rated Best Picture winner, which is sort of fascinating. So a lot going on this year. It's a transitional year for film, and it's kind of a transitional year for the world. (laughs) So I can imagine people were making movies about all sorts of interesting things this year. What was the general consensus at the time about Midnight Cowboy winning? Well, as you might imagine, as an X-rated film, Midnight Cowboy was kind of controversial, which led to it being a little bit of a surprise that it ended up getting all of these nominations and then winning Best Picture. The historical consensus, though, I would say has shifted a bit. I don't think that people really view this as that controversial of either a nominee or a winner this year. I don't know how you felt, but I feel like the X rating is more a historical accident of them figuring out the rating system. I think you watch this now and you would not think it was anything but an R rating. No, I don't think there's anything in this movie that would shock a viewer of 2022, really. Yeah. With that said, are we mad about it? Are you mad that it won Best Picture? I'm going to say yes. Interesting. How do you feel? I think I'm going to say no, but I think this is an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. So, would we have been mad about the other nominees? Would you have been mad if Anne of the Thousand Days had won? Yes. You? Same. Nice. <laughs> I also would have been mad. Would you have been mad if Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid won? No. Me neither. Okay. How about Hello, Dolly? Yes. Yeah, same. And then Z? No. Also no. Okay. So I think we, we mostly agree. Yes, just a bit of a mix on the winner. So we should dive into our our double yeses, which I guess in this case are Anna of a Thousand Days and Hello, Dolly. Yep, start with Anna of a Thousand Days. Why not? (laughs) So also in an interesting twist of fate in our last episode, we had a movie called The Private Life of Henry VIII that was a very different take on a very similar story. (laughs) Yes, although oddly you could start The Private Life of Henry VIII when this movie ends and it would string together all of his marriages perfectly. That's true. That's absolutely true. So unlike Private Life of Henry VIII, which focuses really on wives three through six for Henry VIII, Mm -hmm. this one focuses in on wife number two with a little bit more from wife number one. So I guess... uh, The broad strokes of what happens in it is the king is married to his first wife. He's getting kind of bored of her. And she has not produced a male heir. Yes. He sees Anne at court dancing with somebody and he becomes enamored with her. And then the entire movie is him just desperately trying to get her. So at first he wants to try to make her his, you know, just some mistress. And she is not interested in that. And... He's so obsessed with her that he ends an engagement that she has. He forces her to come to court and she decides that she will sort of try to make the best of this situation by scheming to get power out of it. So she convinces the king that she will be with him, but only if she can become his wife, which obviously is a problem because at the time they were Catholic and he was married and you aren't supposed to be able to get divorced. So it she ends up being the cause of the break of England from the church. And so he does all of that he finds a way to divorce his wife and marries her then 
the bloom is off the rose pretty quickly when she also does not produce a son for him. And then it ends with his team coming up with a way for him to end that marriage as well by inventing some charges against her that he has her killed for. Yeah. And that's the end. (laughs) So what did you think of Anne of the Thousand Days? So I I guess I should say, and I didn't talk about this when we talked about private life of Henry VIII, but this is a period of history I do generally like. The only history class I took in college was England from the 15th to the 17th century, which is this period of history. I read a lot of historical fiction set in this period of history when I was a teenager. And I actually quite liked the first half of this movie. So when it started, I was pretty nervous about it because it actually starts at the end with Henry being so upset that he has to send Anne to her death. And you're like, oh, God, they're going to make Henry sympathetic. This just isn't going to work. But then when we got into his pursuit of her, I thought the film was actually doing something interesting. He's a terror, right? I think this movie does a good job in the first half of just showing how he just shows up and ruins the life of every woman he interacts with. He's Mm -hmm. ruining the life of his first wife, who is a fascinating figure. He's ruining the life of his mistress, Mary Boleyn, who's Anne's sister. He's ruining Anne's life. He's ruining the life of his first daughter, Mary, by turning her into a bastard. He's this really terrible guy. And I think the film is portraying that in a successful way. And it makes all the men around him super gross. And you're like, yes, okay, this is an accurate portrayal of what toxic masculinity does to the world, right? He's tearing his country apart, just because he wants Mm -hmm. to sleep with this woman so badly. But then the second half is not good. There's a turning point where apparently Anne decides she is in love with Henry right before they get married, which didn't work for me. And we can dig into a little bit more. The movie acts like we're invested in their love story and are supposed to find him sympathetic. And I was like, oh, you were doing so good, really vilifying this man. And then you completely lost the thread. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it ended up being not successful. And I think Once you get into the second half, it starts to drag and feel kind of repetitive. But if the second half had matched the first half in its characterization of Henry, I think it would have been pretty awesome. How did you feel about it? You might be right about that. I do think that in the first half, you are definitely hating everything about Henry, (laughs) as you should be. I just never feel like it's gonna work when it's from his perspective mm-hmm. as much as you're trying to make him a bad guy and having watched multiple movies about this now i'm like the story only works if it's about the wife right like the what is interesting about this story is Anne in this situation how this happened to her how she's dealing with it and because we're with him it's impossible to follow the motives of any other character because we're with him so yes. then Anne becomes impossible to track throughout in a way that is detrimental to the movie and it's not just her. When the king is about to kill his first wife, we're supposed to think she's in love with him too. And you're like, what is happening with these women? I 100% agree with you on Anne's characterization. I think I'm bringing in my extra textual knowledge of his relationship with Catherine. So that part doesn't sure. surprise me because they truly were in love. And she was a really strong companion to him up until this point mm-hmm. in their relationship when he decides both that he needs a male heir And he gets this wandering eye. Like he has a midlife crisis, essentially. So they were good partners until Mm -hmm. this point. But I don't think the movie does a good enough job explaining the background of their relationship and how much he also pursued her. 
that, yeah, I can understand why that's unclear. So yeah, I just think unless you're doing a thing where it's really like, let's get into the psychology of Henry VIII, which you could do, I think to try to do just like a pretty straight historical story of it that is from his perspective is doomed to fail. Yeah. Because you're just watching it like this fucking guy is the worst. Right. I 100% agree with you. Those flips with Anne are not well explained enough. And I do think we're outside of his perspective enough at the beginning that I was hopeful. But then yeah, once you're getting into these changes in Anne's perspective, I'm not following her internal life at all. And it's yeah, it's an absolute failure. But really, this film ends at her beheading and the private life of Henry starts at her beheading. You could do a double feature and it would make complete sense. But yeah, it just didn't work for me. And and I, as someone who like, does not have any particular attachment to the historical period. I could see how that would help you a little bit. (laughs) I don't even know if it's attachment so much as I'm able to bring in emotions I already feel with these characters. So I really think having the background of the relationship with him and Catherine helps that make sense. Certainly. But I have none of that to fall back on. I have the private life of Henry VIII. (laughs) No. Okay. Let's talk about Hello, Dolly. Hello, Dolly. (laughs) Hello, Dolly. So yeah, this is a musical. It's a bit of a farce. We have a matchmaker who is a widow, and she's going up from New York City to Yonkers to help marry off the daughter of this wealthy man, but she's also really gunning to marry the wealthy man himself. The wealthy man does not... No, it's not his daughter. It's his niece, Yeah, something like that. Whatever. The wealthy man does not want his niece to marry this artist that she's in love with, but Dolly's there to just make everything happen. And so through a series of events, she gets the niece and the young man into New York City and she tells them, like, I'll figure out how to make your uncle let you guys get married. The wealthy man is interested in marrying the shopkeeper. And of course, she wants to marry the wealthy man. So she's like, I got to get someone for the shopkeeper. So she helps two guys that work for the wealthy man get down to New York City from Yonkers to put them in the way of the shopkeeper and her assistant. Everything culminates at this restaurant with the dance competition. (laughs) And in the end, it all works out and everyone marries who they want to marry. And it's got a nice ending. How'd you feel about Hello, Dolly? You know, I thought it was mostly a pretty good time. (laughs) That's how I felt about Hello, Dolly. It's interesting because there are lots of reviews of this that are about how Barbara Streisand is horribly miscast in it and they think her character is too arch. I didn't have any problems with her. I mean, she's Barbara. She's great. Every time she sings, you're like, this is fantastic. And the fact that it's really just a story about how she found some grumpy rich guy and was like, you know, I should marry him and give his money away. (laughs) And then she does. And you're like, Good for you, lady. When I first started it, I was like, how is Walter Matthau going to be in this? Because that felt like a weird combo to me. But that's just, I think, because I've mostly seen him in older roles. But I thought it was pretty funny. It's a long movie. There are long stretches of it where Barbara and Walter are not around and you're just hanging out with like the young guys and the shopkeeper. And I felt like those kind of dragged a bit. Oh, and then at the end, Louis Armstrong just shows up for no reason. Yeah. So that's kind of exciting. (laughs) So, I mean, the story is really silly, but I thought some of the musical numbers are fun. And I didn't think it was the best thing ever, but I thought it was a fine time. What did you think of it? That's really interesting. I had almost the opposite experience. So I think this is the first Barbara Streisand movie I've ever seen. Mm. And she is too young for the character. The character is supposed to be middle-aged and Barbara was in her mid-20s. 
died. And so I think it does make her relationship with Walter Matthau kind of strange because he is much older, but he is the appropriate age for what the story is supposed to be. But yeah, I really did not care for her performance. She's doing all her dialogue really, really quickly. I couldn't get into a comedic Mm. rhythm with her. And I actually preferred the parts with the two young guys. I thought they were delightful performers. Their dancing was so fun. Mm -hmm. And the songs were largely okay. But yeah, I just, I really didn't think that that central love story between her and Walter Matthau made any sense there's some great really cynical jokes there's a line that walter Matthau has where he says i've worked hard and i've become rich and friendless and mean and in america that's about as far as you can go (laughs) it's like love that yeah walter had great lines yeah there's a whole song about how men only want wives for domestic labor and i was like that's dark as hell (laughs) it's a great song though because i'm obsessed with the, the way they're doing it it's like Men should only have wives that are dainty and beautiful and who will do all of this hard labor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that song is like, I only want a dainty, fragile woman who will shovel ice and fix the plumbing. Yeah. And you're like, this is fascinating. I enjoyed Great that writing. song a lot. I loved a lot of the Walter Matthau lines. Yeah. When he's having a conversation with the guy who wants to marry his niece, he's like, you're an impractical seven foot tall nincompoop. And the guy says, that's an insult. And Walter says, all the facts about you are insults. <laughs> That guy was so tall. He was all he was legs. crazy tall. Also, did you notice that this movie was in Todd A.O.? Yes. Yes. A return to Todd A.O. I wonder when Todd A.O. stopped being a thing. I don't know. I liked when the little, the younger shopkeeper said, holy cabooses and a stuffed yeah, whale. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I thought they were adorable. They were charming. I just felt like their story dragged a little bit. I don't disagree with that. Oh, I love when... Walter Matthau has had his, like, he's come and had this incident with the shopkeeper where he uh, decides he can no longer marry her. And he's upset and he storms out and he's like, I'm going to go be with people I can trust. 700 men! Because <laughs> he's, he's going to the parade. I liked Walter Matthau a lot in this movie. <laughs> he was great. He and Barbara Streisand apparently hated each other. Really? To the point at the end when they kiss, when they get married, they're not actually kissing. <gasps> That's amazing. <laughs> I do love when there's drama between the actors. Yes. But, you know, it's a musical. If you like musicals, if you like light musicals, it's watchable. It, it is still a little too long, but it's mostly it is too long. fine. Should we talk about Midnight Cowboy? Yeah, or yes, no, the winner. <laughs> the winner. Tell me about um, Midnight Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy is a story about a guy from the South cowboy kind of guy who's John Boyd who decides that he's going to quit his job and move to New York City because he has dreams basically of getting women to pay him for sex so he goes there and he finds this more difficult than he anticipated (laughs) he crosses paths with Dustin Hoffman's character who is named well he wouldn't want to be called this but you will know him as Ratso Rizzo who at first tells him he can get him a pimp and he sends him to meet with this guy only if he'll you know spot him some cash of course and then he goes to the meeting with the guy and it turns out he's just some crazy dude <laughs> that Rizzo sent him to and so then he still is really struggling on his own trying to become a prostitute and then he comes across Rizzo again who kind of feels bad for scamming him out of money and so he agrees to let him come stay at his apartment which is just a condemned building that he's been squatting in. Rizzo is sick with something and Rizzo gets worse and worse. And our main guy never becomes good at making money from sleeping with women. 
Rizzo takes a turn for the worse. He wants to go down to Florida where he thinks that everything will be better because it's warm and nice and not winter in New York City. And so there's sort of one last scam where he gets money out of this guy. He takes the money. The two of them go on a bus ride down to Florida. And then right before they arrive, Rizzo dies on the bus. And that's Midnight Cowboy. There's a lot of weird shit going on in this movie that I didn't mention in my review because it's not really plot stuff. It's flashbacky stuff mm-hmm. where you're not really sure what's happening. There's this story in the background. Or I don't think I ever said our main guy's name is Joe Buck, which freaks me out because of Joe Buck of now. But anyway, Joe, our main guy, has all of these flashbacks to some relationship he had with this girl that's very unclear where he claims they were in love, but then clearly some really horrible stuff happened yeah. <laughs> to the two of them. There are all these unexplained flashbacks of them. There are some where it's just her running, being chased by people. And then there's one where the both of them seem to be I don't know. I think the implication is they were having sex in the back of a car and a group of guys gang raped them both. Yeah, it was bad. But then there's also something about like the girl is called Crazy Jenny or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so then I'm unclear about what was going on with her. I think she had a mental break after and got sent to a asylum. I guess that makes sense. That's sort of the through line of his history and then there's what we've got going on in the present where part of why this movie is rated x is there's a fair amount of homosexual content in Mm. it because when he fails at getting women to pay him for sex he realizes maybe men will and so he has a couple of experiences with guy johns and then there's also just an interesting emotional relationship between rizzo and Joe, who are living together and relying on each other and becoming more intimate as things go. When they go to this crazy party, which is the one where he finally gets the woman to hire him, she pretty matter-of-factly asks if the two of them are together because she's like trying to go into some negotiations (laughs) over what's going to happen. And so there's that that's raised. And then when he goes home with her, he ends up not being able to perform and... She again asks if he's gay. And then the ending of it is this emotional intimacy thing of the two of them on the bus together going to their wonderful, perfect lives that Rizzo is imagining where they're running on the beach and having a great time together. And then he dies and Joe just holds him as they drive into Miami because there's nothing to be done. So, yeah, I just I thought it was very interesting I didn't think it all perfectly came together, but I thought it was like a cool movie about people that you don't always see in movies, especially not in 1969, where they're just sort of downtrodden and society is not interested in them. And you're looking at the streets of New York through the eyes of people who are just barely surviving, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, there were lots of parts of it where it was like, I don't really know what's happening (laughs) in this part. But I'll let it pass. What did you think, though? So, I mean, I had a couple of issues with this movie. I think the first of which, you know, when we talked about No Country for Old Men, you had said, I don't understand what anyone's doing, what they're doing in this movie. And I feel like I had a similar experience watching this. Yeah. Where I don't understand why Joe Buck thinks he can go to New York City and become a gigolo, for starters. He's not working as a gigolo in Texas before he goes. So it's not a, you know, a story of like, ah, I'm in this small market, but if I could get to the big city, then I could really make it. 
So like to start, I don't understand his premise of why he thinks this is a thing he can do. And then I feel like the movie goes out of its way in a couple of places to show us that he's actively choosing to not do other things. He just gets up there and he's like, it's prostitution or nothing. Yeah. I don't understand why when you're starving on the street, you don't even think about getting a waiter job or whatever, which is what he was doing before. He was a dishwasher in Texas and there's a scene where he sees a sign that says dishwasher wanted and he goes, no, I guess instead I'll starve and not have any heat or, you know, whatever. And you're like, okay. And then later in the film, there's a very quick line of dialogue where in his condemned building, Rizzo has a YMCA blanket and Joe Buck is like, the YMCA, geez. And you're like, yeah, you could stay at the YMCA. It's a place you can go when you're short on they your have there. You can get yourself clean. You can have a good meal. You can do whatever you feel. Yeah. <laughs> at some point, it feels like they are both actively choosing to live like this. And then you're like, well, not the choice I would make, but... Sure. If that's the way you want to live, cool. You know, I think there's a reading of this movie where all of his actions are in response to this trauma he's suffered, which obviously looks terrible. And there's also something going on in the flashbacks. He was abandoned by his mother and sent to live with his grandmother. And yeah. it seems like she was maybe abusive towards him. It's unclear in what way or to what extent. There's The grandmother story is also, yeah, one where you're seeing a lot of flashbacks. There's something going on with her boyfriends. And then there's something going on with her religion. Because he definitely has some sort of religious trauma in addition to the horrible sexual trauma. But yeah, it's all just nebulous right. flashbacks. And so I, I just don't know that in John Voight's performance in the present day, I read that drama it feels like the movie's really taking advantage of the cool shop effect here they're showing you something terrible and then you're showing you john voight's blank face and they're like see these two things are talking to each other but overall his character i mean he just seems really dumb and i was also thinking about yeah. the conversation we had around forrest gump where you know some of the reviews of that movie i was saying it felt like people wanted to watch a movie about a dumb guy who suffers just because he wasn't particularly bright and i'm like oh that's what this movie is because I can't understand the choices he's making. And he doesn't seem to be able to generate rational ideas. <laughs> and then, you know, the queer content of it is interesting. But it's pretty overtly homophobic and misogynistic. And then there is this sort of queer subtext between Rizzo and Joe Buck. But I think we're going to talk about other movies in this episode that have just as much queer subtext without that overt homophobia and misogyny and i just think that if you were homophobic you could walk away from this movie with all of your negative ideas about gay people just reinforced right there's the idea that homosexuality is the result of trauma you have homosexuals as predators in this movie you know the characters are overtly homophobic themselves it's not i think great from that perspective and then the relationship between him and rizzo i found odd because, and again, I don't know if this is just in John Voight's performance, which I did find to be a little blank. Mm-hmm. He can't even be bothered to not call his only friend Ratso. Rizzo asks him not to, and he never does. <laughs> and I'm like, how much do they care yeah. about each other? I don't know. And so, yeah, I think just like tracking what was happening with John Voight was really difficult for me. And I wasn't quite sure what the movie was trying to say about his character. I think that is fair. I do find... I think Dustin Hoffman is great, and I think John Voight is pretty much always okay. (laughs) I didn't find him to be great in this. But I just thought it was, like, an interesting... You're not seeing a lot of movies about 
this class of character in New York, especially at the time. I don't disagree that they are not perfectly characterized, but I still was like, yeah, I think it's an interesting couple of characters, even though I'm not entirely, I don't feel like I can pin down exactly what they were trying to do. Shall we talk about the ones that we would not have been mad about? Maybe we should go right into Butch Cassidy. (laughs) Why not? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Do you want to give the recap? Yeah, I can. So Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is about the real life figures, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's set in the late 1890s, which I think is interesting because we're going to talk about a couple of true Westerns, including one of the non-nominees, which are set much later in time than the Westerns that we've talked about before. But basically, times are changing. Their way of life is becoming more and more difficult. They end up robbing a train a couple of times in a row, like on its journey west and then back on its journey east. And on the return journey, another little train comes up behind the train that they're robbing and out come a bunch of men. And it's the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which has been contracted by the the guy who owns the train to track them down and, and either kill them or have them arrested. So there's a period of the film where they're being chased by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. They eventually elude them and they go back to Sundance's girlfriend, Edda, who we've met earlier in the movie. And they decide that what they should do is they should go to Bolivia, where it's still the wild, wild west down there. And they continue to live their lives as desperados and bank robbers. So they invite Etta to come along and she agrees. And the three of them go down to Bolivia. And it's not quite what they expected, (laughs) but they do continue their life as bank robbers. Eventually, they think they see the main tracker from the Pinkerton Detective Agency. So they decide to try to go straight for a little while. They have a bad experience going straight, getting robbed themselves by desperados. And they actually have to kill some men, which is unusual for Butch. He's never shot a man before. And so they decide they need to go back to the way they were living before. Etta's like... I can't be here anymore. I told you guys I can't watch you get killed. So she goes back up to America and they stay down in Bolivia. And eventually the Bolivian police and the army catch up with them and they presumably die in a hail of gunfire. What are your thoughts about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? I mean, I love it. I think it's a great movie. We had both seen it before Mm -hmm. watching it for this. It's delightful. It's an interesting set of Western characters it's not the exact western setup that you and i don't love (laughs) that we've had to watch multiple times it's a story about this relationship between these guys i just think the two of them are so great i mean it's it's paul newman and robert redford just the best of the best and the two of them together i mean off the charts they're so good i also their chemistry they're movie stars their chemistry is amazing and they're both from when movie stars were movie stars i also think There's just so much fun to it, which is a thing I miss in a lot of Westerns. I think this is some of the funniest stuff Paul Newman and Robert Redford ever got to do, which is interesting for the genre. It's beautiful and the story is good and you feel for the characters and I just think it's great. What do you think of it? I agree. The script is everything. It's William Goldman. It's so good. He writes great scripts. It's fun and it's funny. I have the same note, Paul Newman, Robert Redford. They're incredible. Their chemistry is great. I thought Catherine Ross's edit was good in this too. She's awesome. The cinematography is gorgeous. We talk about Westerns all the time. Like the one good thing about Westerns is America is beautiful. This was shot around Zion National Park in Utah for the most part. Breathtaking. The cinematographer won this year. He did a great job. America's so pretty. It looks beautiful. The other thing, again, just thinking of things we've talked about recently, you know, when we did 
94 and you were mentioning how in Pulp Fiction it's crazy that Tarantino just stops the movie for that dance scene that's mm-hmm. not relevant to the plot I had a similar feeling about this with the scene where Paul Newman is doing bike tricks and you're like what a weird thing to put in a western it's fucking awesome though it's those <laughs> moments that sell movies where you're like I have never seen anything like this and also I'm obsessed <laughs> like why are we watching five minutes of him doing bike tricks I don't know but I love it yeah it's a lot of fun I was reading that there are people who claim, I cannot back this up, that this is the first true buddy comedy. Yeah, I don't know. But it does feel certainly like an an early one. Yes. Because it very much is that. Which if that is the case, talk about cultural impact. If this is the reason we get <laughs> other buddy we comedies. We owe this film so much. I mean, that's a great legacy. But yeah, you'll have a fun time watching it. It's just so good. The characters are great. The two of us have talked before about about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and we were talking about Catherine Ross's part and how we didn't remember it being that huge. But rewatching it, I was like, I actually think she's additive. I like mm-hmm. her a lot in it. And I think that her place in their relationship is really interesting. I just think at almost every turn in this film, one of the main interesting things about it is when you think toxic masculinity will appear, mm-hmm. they lean in the opposite direction. That's sort of the main characterization I think of this relationship between the two of them anytime you think something's gonna happen where he's gonna be like a guy in a western movie instead he's like nah I would prefer emotional intimacy (laughs) you know it's always interesting when it's characters that are fairly what you might think of as being traditionally masculine figures Mm -hmm. and then they do all of these interesting things in their relationship with each other so I don't know if you want to talk about specific moments or what. Well, I, I, right. The other like important beat is in the end, they choose each other. Etta leaves mm-hmm. to go back to America. Well, and they choose their life of crime. They are unable to escape that. But I think you're right. There are moments where in a different script, there would be a fight. There would be jealousy. There would be a, a big brawl at the end with Etta being like, I have to leave. You have to come with me. You're my husband. And it's like, no, everyone's just real calm and mature. And they're like, this is what I got to do. And everyone's like, yeah, they've sort of laid it out, right? Like Etta has said to them, I will not watch you die. I will do whatever you guys want. Mm -hmm. I will help you in any way possible because I think you're both great and I never would have lived this amazing life that I've lived if it weren't for the two of you. But the one thing I will not do is watch you die. And so as soon as it becomes clear to her that that's what's going to happen when they decide they're going to go back to the life and it's clear, I think, to everyone that sort of the walls are closing in, right? And so it's all of these things where you're right that they could have been points of conflict that just aren't for the three of them through their entire relationship, which is interesting. But then you also have, like, it's not just that they choose each other at the end. Mm. It's the... They're they're emotionally intimate and open with each other throughout the film. Yeah, in a great way. One of the earlier scenes we see of the two of them is them telling each other their real names, which is a wonderful signifier of intimacy between characters like this. And just the moments where they have to share things with each other. There's a time before they've gone to Bolivia where the two of them are cornered by the Pinkerton guys and they're at the edge of this cliff that leads to also a river. a wonderful scene. It's a great scene. And Sundance is ready to have a shootout with these guys, even though they are completely outmanned. And so Butch is like, you know what? We're just going to jump. It's going to be fine. We're just mm-hmm. going to jump into the water. And Sundance is really against it. And Butch can't figure out why. And then it comes out that it's because he can't swim. <laughs> And so Butch just laughs and laughs and is like, oh, don't worry about it. The fall will probably kill you. (laughs) But also the whole bit when they're in the water and Sundance is clearly trying to hold on to Butch. And he's like, if you drown me, I will kill you. 
Yes, they're just bickering the whole way as they float down this river away. It's incredible. Perfect buddy comedy dialogue. It's the ideal buddy comedy. There's a time when they're being chased by the Pinkertons. They're away for a long time and Etta doesn't know what has happened to them and doesn't see them. And they finally come back to her place when they've escaped. And she runs over and hugs them both, which is nice. And then Butch has gone inside. She's having her moment with Sundance. And she's like, I didn't know what happened to you. And he's like, oh, don't make a big deal out of it. And you're like, oh, come on. And then she starts to walk away and he grabs her. And he's like, no, do make a big deal out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and they hug, which is nice. I also, in terms of the best parts of their bickering, I love it when they first get to Bolivia and Sundance is like, what have you it's done? So good. Because they show up at this place and it's just this empty space with fucking nothing in it. Some falling down buildings and some chickens walking around. Yeah, and like a llama. (laughs) Yeah. And he's so upset about it. And they're having their bickering. And then Butch says something about how Sundance doesn't know anything about New Jersey or something. And Sundance is like, ah, then I'll show you. Like, I'm from New Jersey. And there's this pause in the argument where Butch is like, I didn't know you were from the East. My other favorite bit of bickering in that scene is Butch is explaining to Sundance, you know, it could be worse. You get a lot more for your money in Bolivia. I checked on it. And Sundance says, what could they have here that you could possibly want to buy? (laughs) And then when he's having his whole moment, then Butch turns to Etta and is like, he'll feel a lot better after he's robbed a couple banks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, another line I wrote down that I like is after... I think this is after Etta left and they're deciding to go back to their life of crime, but they're trying to figure out what to do. And they've been robbing payroll things, but in the jungle. And Mm -hmm. Butch is like, I won't do any more jungle jobs. And so he starts to just complain about all the various things. And Butch is like, I don't enjoy jungles and I don't enjoy swamps. I don't like snakes. I don't much care for night work. And Sundance is like, bitch, bitch, bitch. (laughs) He has a lot of requirements for the job that he wants to do. Sure. But it's so sad when they are going to die together at the end. It's just They're talking about going the, to all Australia. the time they lost. If only they could have gone to Australia. But we don't see them die. So in our hearts and in our minds and in our dreams, we can pretend they escaped and went to Australia. Exactly. Even though it was hundreds and hundreds. The of whole Bolivian military shows up. The entire army is We're there ready gringos. to shoot them. Well, they are the Yankees. Like, they're famous <laughs> yeah. across the entire place for being these outlaws. It's fucking great. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you read stuff about this year, right? And people are talking about how some of these movies feel more modern and some of them still feel like they have a foot in the past. Mm-hmm. But I think this movie feels timeless. The pacing yeah. of it is perfect. The characterization is perfect. I can't imagine watching this movie at any point and being like, oh, it's a old fashioned. Yeah, no, it's not old fashioned. It's great. All right. Should we talk about Z? Yes. So Z is a Costa Gavras film, as we said. It takes place in Greece in the early 1960s. And basically there is a faction of the government that is promoting pacifism of all things they're kind of left-leaning but they're not necessarily communist their main thing is disarmament so at a speaking engagement with this character who's just referred to as the deputy the military police has been trying to keep this engagement from happening the police are just standing around when counter protesters are there attacking the folks who are 
having the engagement. And they stand passively by when that deputy is assassinated. A car drives through the crowd. He gets hit in the head. He ends up dying. The military police try to make it look like an accident. They say like, oh, it was a bunch of drunk drivers and he got hit by a car and he fell and he hit his head on the curb and he just died. What are you going to do? Any story to the contrary is these communists trying to bring down the government. But we're also following this magistrate who's investigating what happened. And basically at the autopsy, the doctor is like, there's no way he could have suffered this head trauma in the way that it was described. And so basically as the magistrate is going along and he is by no means a sympathizer with these pro-pacifism folks. He's definitely on the government side, but the evidence just yeah. builds and builds and builds to the point where he realizes there's this larger conspiracy that the military police are working with these right-wing nationalists to disrupt these pro-pacifist elements of the government. The magistrate ends up, uh, I guess, indicting high-ranking members of the military and other officials, and the movie ends sort of, with the members of the deputy's team running up to his widow and being like, oh, this is great. They got indicted. We're going to sweep the elections. This is going to rule. Mm -hmm. And then there's a postscript where it's revealed that the prosecutor was taken off the case and all of the key witnesses and the folks who were with the deputy mysteriously died. And then also the elections didn't happen because a military junta took over the country <laughs> for like eight years. And the junta banned all kinds of art, as well as the letter Z, which is why this film is called Z, which became a rallying cry for supporters of the pacifists. And it meant he lives. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what's happening in Z. How'd you feel about it? It's not at all relevant to our current political times. So <laughs> <laughs> they never are. They never are. Costa Gavras, I was happy to watch another of his movies. He loves an ending that's like, we did it. And then in the postscript, it's like, nah, which is a great ending. I mean, it's super relevant political stuff. And it all is very much making you think about not just this specific assassination of a Greek politician, but, you know, everything happening in the world today. I very much enjoyed it. I'll say I feel like he progressed as a filmmaker between this and Missing. Mm -hmm. There's elements of this that feel just sort of like rough around the edges in, from a filmmaking perspective. But I do think this story works really well. I think that the points that it's making are super clear. I don't think anybody should be missing what's going on in this movie. It's quite evident exactly what he's trying to say, which is a successful political statement. Yeah. And I found the magistrate guy who's doing the investigating fascinating because... Because of his cool glasses. Well, his glasses are great. <laughs> I found him great to look at, but also interesting. Yes. Because he's so credulous it's interesting because he's a government guy he works for the government mm -hmm. he's here doing the investigating it's clear to us of course from the beginning that the government is is burying whatever has happened because they go into these initial meetings all the government guys are like here it is we've li they're like we've lined up 13 witnesses that prove that this guy was drunk driver and you're like that feels like overkill that's like so many witnesses yeah. <laughs> why would there be that many and so they bring this guy in and they're basically telling him this is what's going to happen here is what happened here are the charges you will bring that's what's going on and it's obvious that that's what's going on but he doesn't take it like that he's sort of like okay great i'll start my investigation on monday and so then for some reason he really starts an investigation which i was shocked by <laughs> and he's learning all this information that doesn't fit with what the government has told him and you're like duh yeah duh but 
he's in this interesting middle place where he believes everything the government tells him. Whenever the government is like, we heard from this guy who said this thing, that's what happened. He's like, okay, well, if the government says they heard from a guy who said that, totally. But then he also believes the people that he's interviewing who Mm -hmm. provide him with reasonable sounding statements. And he's fairly good at finding out when someone has given him a false witness statement and something contradicts it. And then he charges lots of people with perjury throughout the course of this thing. But he's in this weird middle zone where he thinks everything's just going to progress. Like there's not all sorts of corruption going on above him. And then he gets to this scene at the end when he's finally like, I have to tell someone because there is a conspiracy. He has this meeting with the attorney general who I guess he expects to be like, oh my gosh, you're right. We need to bring charges. And the attorney general is like, I totally understand why you feel like you should bring charges. But isn't it really the fault of the guy who got murdered? (laughs) It basically lays that out. And so then you're like, okay, maybe now he gets it that he was never supposed to say or do any of these things. But then it's like, no, he brought charges. And you're like, wow. (laughs) There's a very interesting part at the end of that scene where the, the, I think it maybe is the representative in the area he's working with is like, you know, you just got to do what your conscience says. And I think they expect him to support the government, but he actually is like, this is a conspiracy. We got to charge all these military figures. It's like he has not the normal layer of bullshit detector that you would expect him to have. He's taking what almost everyone says to him at face value. Yeah. (laughs) It's wild to me that he's our main guy. I thought that was fascinating. But what did you think of it? I really liked it. I remain so angry and frustrated that I think without this project that we're doing, there is a good chance I would never have known who Costa Gavras was for my entire Mm -hmm. life. And I think that's unacceptable. (laughs) It is unacceptable. Everyone needs to know who Costa Gavras is. You know, obviously, as we've gone through, there's a lot of big movies that I haven't watched yet. But I feel like we are at least semi-film literate, you and I Mm -hmm. as human beings. Well, and for the most part, the big films that you haven't seen, you know you're supposed to have seen. Yes, I have an awareness of them. Yes. How is it? Why? Why? Why is no one talking about Costa Gavras? (laughs) What's going on? I don't on? know. It's an injustice. Crazy. I love the opening of this movie. There's a, a text on the screen that says, any similarity to real persons and events is not coincidental. It is intentional. And I was like, oh, shit, shots fired. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> but yeah, I think this movie is interesting in conversation with Missing. I think it's interesting in conversation with Judgment at Nuremberg, because again, we're examining mm-hmm. our institutions. And sort of similarly to Judgment at Nuremberg, you have a central character who's coming in like, we'll find out what happened. I don't know what happened, but we're just going to find out what happened. Yep. But I agree with you. Missing is a better film. And I think as much as we are with that magistrate, he's not as central to the film as Spencer Tracy and Judgment at Nuremberg. And so I think you're missing that sort of character element that's so strong in Missing. Yes. I think it's an effective political statement, but yeah. I don't feel like it's really an emotional journey. I don't think mm-hmm. there's an emotional narrative that you're locked into with Z. Yeah. Kind of, I think, similar to Missing. There are just little details throughout this movie that I love that really put you into the world. There's a scene, I think, once the deputy has died where protesters are coming out and they're painting Z onto the ground in front of the hospital and cops break them up and you see cops grabbing kids and cutting their hair. Yes, I wrote that too. That was fucking wild. That image will aggressively stick with me. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's some casual anti-Semitism in here, which is interesting for today. You know, it's just anytime this kind of fascism pops up, it seems to 
go hand in hand with anti-Semitism for just wild how that works reason. You see the government trying to do the same thing to the deputy that the FBI tried to do to MLK where they're like, did he have any fares? Is there some way that we can smear his character to follow everyone around him? And you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting, and, you know, we've touched on this, we'll always keep touching on it, but there's an interesting conversation happening here as well around the way that this traditional toxic masculinity also aligns itself with fascism. And so one of the little things that I loved in this movie is when they finally indict the general, the magistrate is asking him what he was doing on the night of the murder. And there is a a ballet that's in town from Russia, the Bolshoi. And he says, I decided to attend the Bolshoi, not out of love of dance. I'm no pervert, thank God. And it's like, Calm down. I wrote that down too. <laughs> Obsessed. So yeah, there's just like a ton of little details here of this movie, which which really put you into the space. And again, you just see it over and over again. It's all the same. It's crazy. Everything is always the same. Because fascism is always the same. It has the same hallmarkers, no matter when and where it's happening. They just straight up will say anything. There is no amount of shame that will prevent them from lying directly to your face. There's a great thing where one of them, he's asking him about Croc and the guy's like, I I don't even know what that is. I've never heard of it. I have no connection with them. And our magistrate's immediately like, here's a photo of a dinner that you organized in their honor to to help. (laughs) He's like, it's photoshopped. I mean, it's just like, this is today. You'll be like, this is clear cut evidence that you have done this thing. And they're just like, nah, like, <laughs> how is how are people without shame? But you can just be like, nothing is true. I don't, you can say that I can say what this. What are you going to believe me or your own eyes? Exactly. You make it so that nothing is true. Then what can't you say or get away with? Right? None. Yeah. A democracy is based on the idea that we can share an objective reality. Yeah. So fascism has to remove the idea that we can share an objective reality to work. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I wrote down a couple of quotes that I don't want to get lost because they were so funny. One of the people says at one point, as if it's not enough that our country's been invaded by long-haired thugs, atheists, and junkies of unclear sex. (laughs) Like, wow. Oh, it's all the same as today. It's all the same. Pretty good. But yeah, I love the ending. The ending is super effective. Yeah. And is reminiscent of the ending of Missing and the ending of Judgment at Nuremberg. The only other thing I wanted to mention was I was looking at the Wikipedia entry for this movie. Again, the deepest of research. And there was a quote from William Friedkin about it. And so like, again, we're at this transitional time in movie making and a lot of the films that we watched are doing these experimental editing, like these quick cuts yes. to different things. Yep. Friedkin was saying how this movie influenced the French connection. And he said, after I saw Z, I realized how I could shoot the French connection because Costa Gavras shot Z like a documentary. It was a fiction film, but it was made like it was actually happening. Like the camera didn't know what was going to happen next. And that is an mm-hmm. induced technique. It looks like he happened upon the scene and captured what was going on as you do in a documentary. My first films were documentaries too, so I understood what he was doing, but I never thought you could do that in a feature at the time until I saw Z, which I was like, so is this an early example of someone shooting ultra realism and making it seem like, you know, you're not watching this fictionalized narrative, but something that's actually happening. Is he bringing documentary Mm -hmm. techniques? Because I think in terms of the advancement in, in film technique, this isn't the narrative that I think of when I think of this time period in, in film history. So I thought it was interesting. I thought that was, I saw that too and thought that was cool that yeah. the idea of shooting something like a documentary when it's fake, because it, for something of this subject matter, it's super effective. 
And again, if he's advancing filmmaking in this way, why haven't I heard of him? Ugh. There's no justice in the world. But that's it. It was cool. So that's the nominees. We have a few more films to talk about. You know, we always talk about box office, cultural impact, other best of lists. As we mentioned, we've got three of our nominees in the box office, but we also have Easy Rider. Easy Rider also shows up on the AFI Top 100 list. We actually have four films on the AFI Top 100 list from this year. The AFI loves this year. 69 is great. Midnight Cowboys at 43, Butch Cassidy's at 73. Then we have The Wild Bunch at 79 and Easy Rider at 84. So we watched Easy Rider and The Wild Bunch. We also watched They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which is the film that holds the record for most nominations with no Best Picture nomination. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, but no Best Picture nomination. And then we also watched The Prime of Miss Jean Brody just because we thought it seemed interesting. So we don't have... And and Maggie Smith won Best Actress for it, which is why we were reading about it. And then we were like, oh, there's some weird stuff going on in there. That's probably worth watching. Yeah. I don't know. Should we start with Prime of Miss Jean Brody into They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Into our AFI guys? Why not? All right. Hit me with The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. The Prime of Miss Jean Brody is about a teacher at a girl's private school named Jean Brody. And she's in her prime, you know? (laughs) She really is. (laughs) She's known for having this particular thrall over her students. She likes to educate them in all sorts of ways of the world, not just the specific stuff she's supposed to be teaching them about from their curriculum. And she has Miss Jean Brody's special girls. She's taking them out on weekend trips and they're having lunches together and it's all very intimate and close. And it is about her relationship with the students over the years, but then also she has these two different love interests who are also teachers at the school. One of them, Mr. Lloyd, he's married. She's been having an affair with him for a while, but she has decided that while she is in her prime, she will devote herself entirely to her students. She doesn't have time to marry a man. But as things are sort of cooling off with the first teacher, she starts up a relationship with this other teacher. And then time passes over the course of it. The students are growing up. We're following her cohort from the beginning of the movie as they go through their lives and get older. And... I don't even know how to explain what happens. Like It's worth saying, so I don't know if you mentioned, this movie takes place in the 30s in Scotland. Yes. And so Miss Brody also has a fascination with fascists. Yes. So first she's really interested in Mussolini, and then as things progress, she becomes very interested in Franco. And so she's encouraging all the girls to get interested in fascism. And then at one point, one of her students' brother runs off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, and she gets it in this girl's head that everyone should be doing whatever they can to support Franco. (laughs) So the girl runs off on her own to go join the Franco side of the Spanish Civil War and ends up dying. Meanwhile, another one of our students, Sandy, has sort of started to turn on Miss Jean Brody for a number of reasons. And it all comes to a head after the girl has died going to Franco's war and Sandy decides that she's going to get Jean Brody in trouble because it's clearly just her fault that this girl went to war for no reason and died. And so she reports her. Miss Jean Brody finally is going to get fired. And then she goes, Sandy is there waiting for her. She can't figure out who would have turned her in like this. (laughs) Even though Sandy is waiting in the dark for her when she comes back, which is awesome. and so creepy. And Sandy 
really lets her have it about how bad she's been for everyone and her negative effect and and that's kind of the end and then the movie really ends with sandy leaving her and gene yelling after her assassin yeah (laughs) which was funny yeah what a movie this is like a dark mirror universe dead poet society this is what made me nervous about dead poet society is yes I wrote at the end that this is our question about if it's actually good for students to have this close of a relationship with their teacher taken to the extreme consequences of it. But yeah, it's kind of a wild movie. Gene Brody's a really interesting character. The fascist stuff is wild. <laughs> it was so wild. I mean, at first, like, I feel like it's pretty apparent early on that Gene is not going to be this glowing lovely character because i think it's the first scene when we meet her first she comes in and sort of hilariously is like you need to close the window because anything more than six inches open is vulgar and at first you're like okay that's funny but then immediately there are these new students and she has them stand up and introduce themselves and say their hobbies or what they're interested in and one of the girls is like oh i'm a girl scout basically and i really love tying knots (laughs) and gene brody is like that's bullshit. Sit down. And then the other girl stands up and is like, I don't know if I really have any hobbies. My brother loves tying knots. And Jean's like, that's as it should be. And you're like, Ooh. she's like, ooh, someone I can mold into, you know, what I want. I can't mold this Girl Scout girl. She has interests. Yeah. Anybody who has interests, that's going to be a no for me. <laughs> and the things that she does with these girls is more and more inappropriate and horrible. And you're like, ah, this is not good at all. But then I did feel like by the time you finally got to her getting her comeuppance and Sandy really letting her have it at the end, I was like, you know, it kind of was all worth it just to see all of this happen. Because <laughs> this is wild. Sandy gets her at the end, man. She really does. It's a great scene. But Jean Brody, what a what a character. And then you've set up the principal is the type who, in all of these movies about schools, is the one who's like, we need everything to be traditional. Don't do anything out of the ordinary. We just want you to give them exactly what's in the curriculum and nothing else, character. But in this case, you're like totally sympathetic to her because all yeah. the weird shit that Jean is doing seems <laughs> totally messed up. And so that's an interesting twist on that, where then when she finally gets to fire her, you're like, yeah, principal. <laughs> It's good. Yeah, it really is just like the inverse Dead Poet Society. That was my takeaway. (laughs) But still an interesting and compelling performance. Just stuff kept happening where I was like, did that just happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when she comes back into the classroom after having her confrontation with the principal, and she's had this powerful moment of being like, you won't fire me. Teaching is my life. I love these girls. I've given everything to them in my prime. And then she comes back to the classroom and is immediately like, we're not doing our books today. I'm going to show you a slideshow of Mussolini. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for her to go back to the classroom and immediately be like, Mussolini. You're like, oh, no. (laughs) Ah. That's not great. Well, that's the prime of Miss Jean Brody. I liked how obsessed she was with being in her prime. She talks about it over and over again. And then at the end, she's like, maybe I'm not in my prime anymore. You're like, I don't, (laughs) man, I don't know that this matters. I don't think that's the problem. (laughs) I did love that. Okay. So anything else about Prime of Miss Jean Brody? No. Let's talk about they shoot horses, don't they? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, it's set in the 1930s during the Depression at a dance marathon, which apparently were all over the United States at this time. And what would happen is a bunch of poor people would come and they would dance until they could no longer dance for hopefully cash and prizes, but also they would be fed as they were at the dance marathon and have somewhere to sleep. And so during the Depression, if you were poor, this was an option for you. And when we say these you know, you dance until you drop. These things are going on for weeks. Yeah, into months. Every two hours, they get a 10 minute break. Mm -hmm. And people will do this for more than a month. Yes, I tried to Google it. And the longest dance marathon was in Chicago and it lasted 145 days. What? The fuck? (laughs) So we're following a subset of the characters more closely. There is a guy who is just kind of shown up accidentally and gets brought in. And he doesn't have a partner, but he ends up getting paired with Jane Fonda's character who shows up with a partner, but he has bronchitis. And so like he can't participate or something. Yeah. So they get put together. There's an older guy and his partner. There's a married couple where the wife is pregnant, quite pregnant. Yes. And then there's a pair of aspiring movie stars, one of whom is is very glamorous, sort of, obviously it's before this time, but Marilyn Monroe asked. She's like a bleach blonde and she's wearing beautiful dresses. And it's super claustrophobic because they're stuck in this dance hall. The movie just breaks them down. Sometimes, you know, just a result of the dance marathon. But at one point, the MC steals the actress's dress just to torment her, just to like drive her more insane because she's too glamorous for the audience to relate to her. So he needs to bring her yeah. down a notch. And over the course of the dance marathon, they get sponsors. People come. It's a it's an event that you go and you watch. And... Eventually, Jane Fonda and the guys, you know, they get closer as the dance marathon's going on because they're dancing together for days and days and days on end and chatting. He ends up in a kind of an odd scene, sort of almost sleeping with the actress. Jane Fonda seems to get jealous, so they swap partners. But then the actor that Jane Fonda was with leaves. She ends up luckily getting paired with the older guy because his partner drops out in between the dance marathons just to spice things up they also will sometimes just make them run around the gym for five minutes at a time i think it's 10 (laughs) for 10 minutes at a time and then the three couples that come in last get kicked out yes and so they're doing that they've done that a few times and the older guy starts to struggle jane fonda gets him over the finish line and he has died but the doctors are like he's fine he's totally fine he just just, just, we can't compete anymore but he's definitely dead meanwhile the actress has had a breakdown probably because the guy died and so jane fonda and the other guy pair up again i think what the mc wants them to get married and they're like we're not going to do that and they end up finding out that if they win the dance marathon all of the food and supplies and whatever else they've been given over the time will be deducted from the winnings they get so they'll win almost nothing Mm -hmm. and so they decide to quit And they go outside for the first time in months because they really aren't like allowed outside. Mm -hmm. And Jane Fonda is just like, I'm so tired. I can't do this anymore. Will you please kill me? Yeah, she brings out a gun she's had on her all the time. And the guy shoots her in the head. We've been seeing flash forwards of something happening with him throughout the movie. But you don't know they're flash forwards. You don't. I thought they were flashbacks. (laughs) Me too! It was shocking. And then also at the beginning of the movie, there is a flashback of him as a young man and a horse being put out of its misery being shot. And so when he gets locked up, they ask him, why did you do it? And he says, well, they shoot horses, don't they? Well, first he says, she asked me to. And then they're like, oh, this poor idiot. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he says. But then it cuts back and the dance marathon is still going. And that couple with the pregnant lady are still in it. And like, it's bad. 
Mm-hmm. How'd you feel about this movie? I loved this movie. I thought it was fantastic. There's so much great about it. I mean, Jane Fonda, a legend, mm-hmm. always fantastic. I thought the cast generally was really good. But the idea that this is a real thing that happened is just mind-boggling. <laughs> and and it, it's interesting because it is wild that it happened then, but then I feel like this sort of thing just has always happened and will always happen using the horror of being poor as amusement for rich people mm-hmm. is obviously still happening today like i was thinking about people don't have to die from it it's also like fucking mr beast on youtube just having poor people compete for prizes because they need the money and people pretend it's all heartwarming which they do in this too where it's like this is actually great because these poor people are going to win this money and it's going to change their lives forever and it's going to be amazing and it's just like so disgusting and incredible it's such a wonderful perfect indictment of capitalism and just society it's great yeah and they're engineering narratives throughout it like reality tv the mc is mm-hmm. it's gross. yes and and the fact that they can have sponsors is wild as hell and then there's stuff going on where some people just come in for a night of amusement but then there are also regulars that are there all the time watching this and so there's this woman that becomes particularly interested in the narrative of jane fonda and her partner and so they're exhausted, obviously, and it's bullshit and they don't want to be doing what they're doing. They have to because they need to eat. And so then this woman keeps calling out to be like, hello, like, will you come talk to me? <laughs> so they have to keep going over to talk to this woman to keep her interested in them because she's going to help them get a sponsorship. And it's just disgusting and amazing. And I thought it was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I love this movie, too. It is this perfect, neat little metaphor for the way capitalism exploits poor people. But the ending was shocking to me. As much as there are me the too. flash forwards, which I did think were flashbacks, and you're getting, you know, we don't learn much about the, I, I don't know the guy's, the actor's name. I feel bad. He's a mystery, though, that character. You're never learning yeah. a lot about him. We never really learn that much about where he comes from and what his deal is. And so then it's interesting that he's the only one we're seeing these, what we think are flashbacks mm-hmm. to. And so you're thinking like, okay, he has some sort of criminal backstory and that's what's going on with him. But then for the twist to be that that's going to happen in the future and it's all as a result of this thing, it's like, that's quite the twist. Michael Sarazen is the name of the actor. It was great. And the way they shot him shooting Jane Fonda in the head too was like, what's happening? Oh my God. Yeah, man. And then for them to cut back to the dance marathon still ongoing. One of the great horrific things about this movie is the pregnant woman. It's crazy. You're so worried about. Every time they cut to the pregnant woman, you're like, she cannot still be in this. How is it possible that she's still in this? And it's just her husband dragging her limp body around the floor, basically. It's crazy. And then, yeah, the way when the the MC steals that woman's dress, that was horrible. And, And that's interesting because that's what leads to the scene between the partner and the actress he finds the dress all torn up in the trash and he confronts the mc about it and he's like we should find out who did this we have to investigate and so the mc finally is like it was me duh i can't let someone in a fancy dress be out there dancing when all of these rich people are here to look at the poor not good for the narrative exactly and that scene is also really important because the mc tells the guy this is a show not a contest. You may think this is a contest mm-hmm. for all the people here dancing, but what this is is a show for the people who are here watching. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's obviously the thesis of what's going on with the movie. She asked but me yeah. to. 
They shoot horses. She asked him to. It's so bleak. The ending is so bleak. It's extremely bleak, but in excellent ways. Yeah, I thought it was great. You know, we can talk at the end about maybe what we think should have been nominated and switch things out, but I don't understand why this wasn't nominated. Well, and that it was nominated for a bunch of other stuff is like, what are we doing here? It's weird. All right. We should talk about our AFI things. I would prefer to finish with The Wild Bunch, I think. So can we talk about Easy Rider? We can. What's Easy Rider about? (laughs) Easy Rider is about a couple of like counterculture dudes. They have just made some money selling cocaine. And so they're like, we should go on a road trip with this money and just like have a good time. And so they hop on their motorcycles and they're going to go down to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, as their ultimate goal. But along the way, they sort of have these various encounters. They pick up a hitchhiker and he takes them out to the desert where he's living with this commune of people doing their commune lifestyle and then (laughs) they leave and then they're driving down south and they drive through a town where a little parade is going on and they just happen to join the parade on their motorcycles because they think it's fun and then they get picked up for parading without a license (laughs) so they're thrown in jail and of course the further south they've gotten the more everybody that they meet is like you guys seem weird we're not interested in you Mm -hmm. so then they've been thrown in this jail and also in the jail cell with them is a young jack nicholson who is an attorney and he he works with the ACLU or something. Mm -hmm. And so he meets them and he's like, oh, you're kind of interesting guys. And he helps them get out of prison and they tell him that they're going to Mardi Gras and he has always wanted to go to Mardi Gras but never really made it down. The reason he wants to go down there is someone has given him a card of like, if you go to Mardi Gras, you gotta go to this whorehouse. And so they're like, well, you could come with us. And the three of them head down. They're getting progressively further south. They stop in this small town and go to a diner. And all of the guys see them and are really upset about their presence because they're clearly hippies with long hair. And they think somebody needs to teach these guys a lesson. And so they leave. And that night, sleeping around their campfire in the woods, the guys have followed them and they beat the shit out of them and end up murdering Jack Nicholson. So then they're sad about that, but they also feel like Jack Nicholson would have wanted them to go to New Orleans to go to this whorehouse Mm -hmm. so they should continue their journey. And so (laughs) they go down to New Orleans. They make it to the whorehouse. These two women that get assigned to them, they decide they're all going to go out into Mardi Gras. And then they've been gifted some LSD by the commune guy. And so they go to like a fancy cemetery and all do the LSD and have their LSD trip. And then the two of them continue on their journey. And then they're driving down a country road and some guys in a pickup truck drive by and are like, ha ha ha, let's teach these hippies a lesson. And one of them points his shotgun at one of them just to scare him, presumably. But they hit a bump in the road and he accidentally shoots him, Dennis Hopper. And then they drive away and Peter Fonda turns around to come find out what happened to Dennis Hopper and then the guys also turn around and they shoot Peter Fonda too and everybody dies. Yeah. That's Easy Rider. Indeed it is. How did you feel about this movie? You hadn't seen it before. Honestly, I did not hate it nearly as much as I expected because I know that you did not enjoy it. And I won't say that I enjoyed it really, but I did find it to be kind of an interesting piece about counterculture of the moment and I think people hadn't seen characters like this on screen and So I do feel like I understand why it was an important movie for them to make. I understand why people think that it is culturally relevant. And it certainly speaks to 1969. 
it's not really like a movie. It's just like a series of things that happen. You're not like following a narrative that really pays off with a great emotional arc. When they both got killed at the end, I was like, oh, just like everybody's dead. It feels, I mean, I don't want to speak for you. It feels a little bit like they didn't know how to end the movie. Yes, I don't disagree with that. They wanted it to have maximum impact, but they did it in a way where it was sort of just like, huh, so that's how it ends. But I liked Nicholson in it. I liked his little white linen Southern lawyer suit. He looked like perfect little Southern lawyer. Dennis Hopper is always good. I didn't realize that that he had directed this movie, which I thought was interesting. It, like several of the others we watched this year, was doing all sorts of experimental film stuff. Mm -hmm. When they're transitioning between scenes, they're doing these flashes, jump cuts cuts between the scenes to transition. You're like, this is just kind of (laughs) off-putting. Strange. I don't know exactly what we're doing here. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't watch it again, but I sort of am like, Okay, I get it. Like, I'm glad that I've seen this and I get why people wanted to make movies about counterculture. Tell me about your experience. What was it like to rewatch? I think I had a similar experience rewatching this movie as I had watching it originally, although I think I'm better able to articulate my problems with it, which is good. Sure. So, yeah, that is good. I had to watch this movie for a class I took in college that was guest taught by a professor from USC called The Idea of America. And Mm. I went into this class thinking it was going to be about the different narratives that different groups of people tell themselves about America, but it ended up just being about Manifest Destiny. And I don't Mm. think I thought this through at the time, but it was an extremely white class, just white people's idea of what America is. And this very Western focus, which was unusual for me as someone who's only lived on the East Coast and grew up in the East. I don't think about Manifest Destiny a lot or the West, honestly. A lot of my conception of America is tied up in the history of Black people in America, for instance, right? And that's just not what that class was. And like, that's the class where I watched Birth of a Nation. And that's the class where I watched this movie. And I don't think we read or watched anything produced by people of color. So, (laughs) yeah. And so, you know, I'm a senior in college in 2010. And that's right when the Tea Party was getting started. And so what hit me Mm -hmm. this time that I don't think I was able to articulate then is this is a very libertarian movie. This is an extremely libertarian view of what they call freedom. And I think it is interesting that Dennis Hopper identified as a libertarian, and he also voted for Ronald Reagan. We know that about his politics, which is interesting for someone who made a movie about the counterculture. And so, Mm -hmm. like, this movie makes me furious when I watch it, right? These are people, these are white men at the end of the 60s, with all these things that are going on, civil rights movement, Vietnam, the environment is in shambles, right? Our rivers are on fire. There are so many real problems happening in America. And they're like, we're not free to drive around and just get high. And you're like, who cares? And that kind of freedom can only exist on the backs of the exploitation of others, right? And they, there's no juxtaposition of that. There's no people of color in this movie. In the scene right before Jack Nicholson dies, he specifically says, right, this white guy from the South, this used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's gone wrong with it. And it's like, I hate all these people so much. These are the worst people. They just want to do whatever they want with no responsibility. And an egalitarian society will never look like this, what they want it to look like. And I think the idea of people watching this and being like, yeah, it's such a shame that this didn't work out. That worries me. It worries me. And it's interesting, too, because I talk about, they, you know, 
I don't necessarily disagree with all the critiques in the movie because they're critiquing capitalism. They're critiquing these white Southerners who are bad. But like, mm-hmm. they're able to have this lifestyle because they sold cocaine. It's not like they're not participating in capitalism. And then they go to this whorehouse and there's no thought about the fact that they're literally buying and selling these women's bodies. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so myopic. <laughs> it makes me furious. <laughs> And so I think I hated it just as much as the first time I watched it, but I think there's more context for me around it now. The experimental filmmaking, I guess, is interesting, but we've seen it in some of the other movies from this year, so it's Mm -hmm. not particularly unique in that way. The other thing that I think is so frustrating about this movie is I I think they shoot America pretty poorly in this. It looks like someone's Mm -hmm. home videos. America doesn't even manage to look beautiful in this movie. And I'm like, what's the point? Really? What's the point? (laughs) What's the point? (laughs) And this movie is like 90 minutes long. And I think a third of that is just them driving around on their motorcycles to pop music as they have home videos of, you know, whatever they're driving past. To your point, this isn't really a movie. It's a bunch of white men complaining that they can't just get high and then driving around on their motorcycles. And it makes me angry, especially in 1969. Mm. People were really struggling with stuff at this point in time. And this is what you want to complain about? Fair enough. I think that is all completely fair. I don't know. Everybody dies. I mean, again, much like Pulp Fiction, don't point your gun Mm -hmm. at someone you don't really want to shoot. Never point a gun at anyone that you don't intend to shoot. This is the main rule of guns. Come on, people. You just can't point guns at people as a joke. No, it's a bad idea. idea. It's a bad idea. So if we could learn anything from Easy Rider, (laughs) it's about gun safety. Yeah. Do we have anything else to say? No. Okay, so last but not least, our ninth film, The Wild Bunch. Do you want to give the quick what happened? Yeah, so it's about a group of outlaws, the Wild Bunch, you might call them, Mm -hmm. who rob a bank. And while they're in town trying to rob a bank, a posse has been rustled up by a railroad magnate to stop them. And they get into a huge gunfight in this town that results in a lot of casualties. And so the Wild Bunch are able to escape. They get back. They discover that what they thought they were stealing the gold they thought were stealing was actually just washers, like nuts and bolts and washers. And so they don't have any money. And so they decide to go down to Mexico to look for opportunities to make more money. And they end up running into a general. And this is during the Mexican Civil War. What's the conflict that's happening in Mexico? I wish I was more certain about it, but it's definitely something like that. An, an internal conflict in Mexico that they run into. Yes. And the general that they meet tells them that he will pay them a, a ton of gold if they will rob this train and steal the ammunition and the guns from it and bring them to him so he can you know, help his war effort. And so they agree to do that, but they also agree that they will divert some of the guns and ammunition to one of the members of their bunch who's from Mexico to arm his village because they've been terrorized by the general. They successfully rob the train. They're eluding the posse that's following them. The leader of the posse has a previous relationship with the head of the wild bunch. They were partners together and then one of them got caught. And so now he's to stay out of jail. He has to try to catch his friend. And so they're, yeah, they successfully rob the train. They end up giving most of the guns back to the general, but he realizes that he's been tricked. And so he takes the Mexican member of their team and he's torturing him and they all decide that, you know, like, no, they're not just going to let this happen. They're not just going to take the cash. They're going to be loyal friends and go and rescue the member of their bunch. And they do that and there's a huge gunfight and they all die. 
How did you feel about the Wild Bunch? I have a ton of thoughts about the Wild Bunch. Okay. I won't say that I really enjoyed watching it, (laughs) to be fair, but I think that it's super fascinating. And I think that it, in combination with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, are both having this very interesting conversation about Westerns, generally. Yes. Oh, so I think I didn't say, and again, sorry, we don't know what part of Mexican history this is happening during, I but this movie sh- takes place in like 1913. It's way yes, late. this is like the end of the Wild West. Yeah. So what had kind of been happening in Butch Cassidy is really happening now where they're being pushed out of what they have been doing all their lives. William Holden plays the head of the Wild Bunch and he's past his prime basically and has been doing this for a long time and had his own glory days, but now it's very much... There's nowhere they can go really anymore that is still this this Wild West area where they can do what they had been doing. And so everybody's either going to have to adapt or die as things come to a close. So when we had read about this before we watched it, it's this described as being sort of Peckinpah's take on like an unglamorized view of the West. Yes, it's a revisionist Western. It's uber violent and there's all sorts of stuff going on in it that is... Postcode. It's real postcode. I thought this movie was a harder R than Midnight Cowboy. I think that's fair. I mean, Midnight Cowboy's only an X because of the gay stuff. Yeah. Peckinpah's very much being like, look at the horror, look at it. Well, there's even also just like more nudity in this movie. That's true. So here's what I'll say, my little essay about it. I think this and Butch Cassidy are both what I would think of as being kind of anti-Westerns, but I also think that they are opposite of each other. So Peckinpah is doing this thing where he's like, we have glamorized and romanticized the Old West and these Western heroes, and I'm going to show you a movie where there's no romance, there's no glory, there's no honor, it's just like dark and awful and violent and everything is horrible. (laughs) And so that's what's going on here. And you're not supposed to be like, oh, these guys are such heroes. I think part of what makes that effective in this is there's a ton of kids in it, Mm -hmm. which I thought was fascinating. I feel like you don't see a lot of kids in Western movies other than Shane, which (laughs) we all know how we, we felt about the kid in Shane. But I feel like they mostly in the earlier Western stuff are are these places of all adults. You're finding mostly violent criminal man types, a sheriff, and some female prostitutes if there are women. And that's the people who live in these towns. And so we're later in time, the towns are more developed in this movie. And the first scene in it has all these kids that are in the town gathered around watching these ants eat these scorpions. And it's like some fascinating metaphorical stuff going on there but then also in Mexico in the various towns they go to there are lots of kids and I think it's interesting because to me what that does is every time you see the kids these vulnerable little kids you're thinking about how ultra violent and dangerous all of our main characters are I feel like it makes you feel like these are not heroes that we want around to protect our children and so it's interesting because you're not really thinking of them as heroic sheriffs or even white hats who are there to use violent means for important ends i feel like they're just causing chaos everywhere they're going and it's mostly horrible and then it's sort of the flip side of the coin with butch cassidy and the sundance kid where They're also not there to show you how great traditional masculine values are, right? We talked a lot about how they're sort of doing the opposite of that Mm -hmm. at every time. They're not here to to say, like, this was the time when men were men and, you know, it was great and everything masculine is so wonderful and heroic. 
And both of them are sort of tragedies, but Butch and Sundance is a tragedy about they can't escape the life. Their devotion to each other is what is interesting to us. Mm -hmm. And that's the romantic element of it. And like romantic in the sense of how Westerns would be sort of romanticized. Yes. Their relationship is beautiful and romantic and interesting. And the tragedy is the end of it and the loss of the time they would have had together because they were unable to escape this horrible thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they do, which is also a message about the Westerns. Whereas in The Wild Bunch, everybody dies. It's sort of a traditional tragic ending where it's the giant shootout and everybody is dead. But there's this interesting difference between what you see. Like, I think it's cool that in Butch and Sundance, you end on this frame of the two of them and they're going out to maybe die or maybe not, if you can sort of pretend that's not what happened. Whereas in The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah is like, look at the yes. the gruesomeness. <laughs> you will see every horrible death. Everything is awful as it goes down. And so I think they're really interesting bookend pieces with each other, even though the experience of watching The Wild Bunch is not fun and the experience of watching Butch Cassidy is the just most a great fun. fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about The Wild Bunch? Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting in comparison to Butch Cassidy. I think one of the things that I struggle with, with the Westerns we've watched and the Westerns across the board is, I think actually most of the Westerns we've watched for this podcast People say like, oh, they're different from regular Western. Oh, they're more psychologically complex. Oh, this is a revisionist Western. Oh, this is showing how harsh the reality really was. But none of them are really deconstructing like the problem that I have with Westerns, which is the role of the white man in the West with regards to other peoples, with regards to women, Mm -hmm. with regards to people of color. I don't think upping the violence is also getting at that issue. And it was interesting. I was reading this this thing about Peck and Pa where, you know, obviously we're postcode, not that far postcode. So this is the first time you could really show this kind of violence in a film. And apparently he thought this violence would be used as a catharsis, believing the audience would be purged of violence by witnessing it explicitly on screen. Peck and Pa later admitted to being mistaken, observing that the audience came to enjoy rather than be horrified by his film violence, which troubled him. So I think On the one hand, his innocence is kind of sweet, but it's very difficult to make film violence not appear exciting and glamorous. So like, it's interesting that Butch Cassidy freeze frames on the most violent part of the movie, right? And I'm also, again, thinking about No Country for Old Men that just cuts out the most violent part of that film when Anton Chigurh finally catches up with Josh Brolin. And thinking about that in terms of how you portray violence because again i think a lot of people would watch this movie and just see all the squibs going off and be like oh so cool look at them and as much as you know our wild bunch is not the best guys at the end they are the ones who decide to do something noble it's still the white guys at the end being like no we're going to be loyal we're going to be noble and they still portray i think the brown people as being the most atrocious they're the ones who are torturing this guy and it's horrific they're dragging him around Mm -hmm. behind a car All of the women in this movie, the brown women, are just exploited. They're whores. There's a scene in the final shootout where a woman pulls a gun on William Holden and he goes, bitch, and then blows her away. And I'm like, this is straight out of a Tarantino movie. Sure. And so I just, I don't think upping the violence is the way to undercut the narrative of the Western. But I also think Peck and Pa didn't know that at the time because they hadn't tried it yet. I mean, looking back now and all of the violent films people have made since then you can be like obviously people can watch this movie now and be like oh yay violence 
But I, I don't think that would have been as immediately apparent to Sam Peckinpah when he was. I think he didn't it. know. I think he, I think he yeah. legitimately thought people would be so horrified by this. But then people watched and were like, right. awesome. And he was like, oh, well, my bad. some people. I don't, I don't know if they all did, but yeah. I mean, that's what action movies are. They're heightened violence. And I think a film will never recreate the experience of being around actual violence. Because, you know, I used to live in a city where I would occasionally hear what I was pretty sure were gunshots. And it activates your sympathetic nervous system because you're like, where are they? Am I in danger? What's going to happen? You'll never have that experience watching a film. You know you're not in danger. Mm -hmm. So I just, I don't think it can quite translate. And I'm not sure how to deal with it. I don't know if just cutting out the violence is the answer to subvert what's happening. But yeah, again, I don't, I don't know that for me, this film is getting at the issues that I have with Westerns and subverting and deconstructing that part of the narrative. Because I really do think at the end, it really is the white guys getting together and still being the noble ones, right? They still are the heroes in the end. I thought it was sort of interesting that the only time in the movie that any of them decides to like, quote unquote, do the right thing, it results in everyone's death. (laughs) Like that was interesting. But yeah, I mean... It's certainly not doing all the things it could do to deconstruct the terrible things about the West. But I do feel like I get what his intentions are, whether or not they're as effective as they possibly could be. But that's The Wild Bunch. And that's nine films we just talked about. So let's get to what do we think should have won? I think for cultural impact and quality, I probably would give it to Butch Cassidy. But I truly would not be mad if any Costa Gavras movie ever won in the hopes that it would let more people know who Costa Gavras was. And honestly, if they had nominated They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And that had won, I'd be fine with that. Triple same. Couldn't agree more about all three of those things. I think those are quite clearly the best films of this year. I think that Butch Cassidy is undeniably a cultural force to be reckoned with. And it would have been not incorrect for them to recognize it and at exactly the same as we said with missing it'd be nice if someone would just let Costa Gavras win and then everyone in the world would be like should we know who Costa Gavras is maybe we should be watching these movies you should (laughs) and then they shoot horses don't they was such a surprise for me because I hadn't seen it and I only vaguely knew what it was about and I was blown away I loved that movie the ending was so chilling it was that was such an effective twist that you're seeing all these things that you think are flashbacks and then realize at the very end that they're flash forwards that was so extremely well done i didn't see it coming at all no it's good movie okay (laughs) it's so good so did the oscars get it wrong i mean i said i was mad that midnight cowboy won so yes for me i don't know if you feel like since you said no to midnight cowboy i mean um, i'm not mad mad but i do feel like there were better choices so take that as you know I don't know how much weight to put on that I get why Midnight Cowboy won but I also think if I'm looking back now making the decision it's Butch yeah it's Butch and Sundance okay so we'll chalk this one up to a yes the Oscars got it wrong cool and now for the most important part of the podcast where we take a little walk down the lane to Jake Gyllenhaal corner. Should Jake Gyllenhaal have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Well, he was definitely not alive. Yep. So instead, are there any roles we think would have been good for him? Honestly, a lot of juicy options. There are. Part of the issue, though, is like... Oh, we have to take someone out of the role. 
I'm not taking Paul Newman or Robert Redford yeah. out of Butch and Sundance. It's just not happening. <laughs> so I think he could have been good in Midnight Cowboy. There's a lot going on there. I think he might have brought more to the Joe Buck character than John Voight was able Definitely. to. He's got more depth than John Voight yeah. does. I don't know. What else is there for him to do? I mean, we're probably not putting in Z. I wouldn't put him in Hello, Dolly or Anna of the Thousand Days. Mm-hmm. I would say if we're including the non-nominees, he might have been interesting as the MC character and they shoot horses, don't they? Oh, that's intriguing because I would have imagined him as one of the dancers, but he could have been cool as the MC. I like that as an idea. Obviously, you can throw him in any of these ensemble. Like he could have been in the Wild Bunch. He could have been in. He could have been an Easy Rider. But I think that I like the idea of him in Midnight Cowboy instead mm-hmm. of John Foyt. I think that is an interesting role for him. And also, swapping him out could improve the movie. Yes. Conclusion time. You see yourself coming back to any of these movies? Yeah, I mean, I'll watch Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid again any any day you want. As we all should. <laughs> any day you want. I'd be open to rewatching Z again. I think it would also be helpful now that I'm oriented. Well, there's so much going on that's so specific to a political era and place that is not super familiar to me. So as things go on, you start to see the universal political stuff mm-hmm. that applies to now. But when you're starting, you're sort of like, I don't know exactly who each of these groups are and how they yeah. relate to each other. So it might help to watch that again. Yeah. And then I would 100% rewatch They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And I'm going to tell everyone else that they should watch yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I could watch The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And I don't know that I'm going to super do that. That's I don't know that honest. I would watch it again. But yeah, Z, Butch Cassidy, Shoot Horses, Don't They? Those are the three. Yeah. Those are the good ones. Okay, what have we learned? Anything to add to our thesis about what makes a best picture? I think it's interesting that this year something that was at the time so controversial Mm -hmm. was widely nominated and won. I think that is interesting because you usually think of the Academy as being fairly risk averse. Yeah, so the fact that they were sort of ahead of the curve here in front of even lots of critics of the day was interesting. But I don't know, other than that, it's a fascinatingly broad collection of nominees, mm-hmm. but also I feel like most of them fit into things that the Academy generally likes a lot. There's a historical drama. There's a political thriller thing, which is not uncommon for them. There's a musical, which at the time from this at the time was very common. And then, you know, they love a Western. Yeah, it's an interesting group of films. We've obviously we've done two years in the seventies, but we'll see how it leads into the whole new Hollywood of the seventies. Yeah, we haven't done the early seventies. No. So it will be interesting to see if it is similar to what's going on here. Okay. So checking in with our patterns, we have angry white guys. All over the this place. This is sort of there are angry white guys all over the place, and I feel like we are approaching the era of what we think of as being our prototypical angry white guys movies. Mm-hmm. So there are fucking tons of them. Yeah. <laughs> They're all over the place. They're all over the place. The era of angry white guys begins. Biopics. We've got Anne Boleyn, kind of. Yeah, I would say none of them are, again, your traditional Traditional. soup to nuts biopics. There are some things that are touching on real people and real stories, but it is more of a closed in scope. So Mm -hmm. that's cool. And to check in on original ideas. We have not very many original ideas. All of our nominees are based on some, well, Butch Cassidy is original, but based on real life. Mm -hmm. And then the others are Anne of a Thousand Days is based on a play. 
Midnight Cowboy, a novel, Hello, Dolly, stage musical, and Z is also based on a novel and real events. Yes. And then two of our non-nominees, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, and The Prime of Miss Jean Brody are based on novels. But we do have two last-minute originals creeping in with Easy Rider and The Wild Bunch. So, you know, I feel like a fairly traditional mix (laughs) of number of original films. It's interesting that Butch Cassidy and The Wild Bunch are both uh, original-ish screenplays, but again, plot-wise, very similar. It's fascinating. What a fascinating coinkydink. Honestly. So what are we talking about next time? Next time, we're talking about the 85th Academy Awards, or the films of 2012. The nominees were Amour, Argo, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. Wow. We're into the long lists again. Yeah, nominees. more than five nominees. How many of these have you seen before? The only ones I have not seen are Amour and Life of Pi. I've all seen right. all the rest. How about you? I've only seen Django Unchained. Damn, you got a lot of watching ahead of you, girl. <laughs> Guess so. <laughs> I mean, I'll watch them all too, but. Well, that's true. So, of course, we'll be doing another bracket episode, but we'll see what that all pans out to look like. Indeed. In the meantime. If you have comments, questions, concerns, or thoughts about anything we talked about today, or any day, really, you can reach us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and we have a website, OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>